Welcome to the BDSI Podcast. I'm your host, Gentry Quinn. My next guest is the star of the hit documentary, The Pretender, that premiered at the Beverly Hills Film Festival, and he's also the creator of the Yo! Philly Rocky Film Tour. He has spent his entire life impersonating and paying homage to his favorite character and movie, Rocky, which also just happens to be mine. Welcome to the Beauty Aside Podcast. I'm Gentry Quinn. I dropped out of school at the age of 17, got my GED, and still managed to build multiple businesses and a beauty line from the ground up. Beauty Aside, each week we'll be talking with entrepreneurs and learning what it takes to achieve balance and what it really means to follow your dreams. Welcome, Mike. Yo, Gentry, how are you doing today, huh? I am doing wonderful. How are you? Well, this is uh, a great start to my day, honestly. I'm so glad to be here chatting uh, about all things Rocky. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I just love your energy. I know I said that before we started talking, but you just literally have the best spirit about you. I don't even know you that well, but that's <laughs> how you're making me feel already. So thank you for that. And I also want to say that there's just so much about your story that I love. So thank you for being here. Uh, this is going to be awesome. I'm really looking forward to it. Me too. So for those who haven't had a chance to see the documentary, The Pretender, and if you haven't seen it, guys, you have to go see it. It is so awesome. First of all, can you take us back to when you were a kid and you first watched Rocky? Was there a defining moment in the film or was it the overall message of the story that resonated with you the most? So um, it's funny. Earlier we were talking about how you wake up on any given day where your emotions may or may not take you. Mostly, when I first saw Rocky, I was 11 years old, 1979. I was a little too young to see it in 76 on the big screen. And I was dealing with schoolyard bullies. I was, I'm only five foot 10. I'm a very average guy in height. So, uh, but as a kid, I was petite, (laughs) which put a bullseye on me from schoolyard bullies. So I came home one day and uh, my dad was like, uh, you know, Mikey, Sunday, it was a 79, February 79. He said, Mikey, there's a movie on TV called Rocky. And it's about this guy. He's Italian. We're Italian. And, uh, you know, he's a fighter. He's not too good, but he keeps trying. Maybe if you watch it, he might give you some tips on what to do on the schoolyard. And he held up his fist. So I said, hey, it's my dad. He's not going to steer me wrong. So I sit down and I see those big white letters scrolling across the screen. And you hear Bill Conti's fanfare for Rocky. Oh, my God. I've never been inspired (laughs) like this in my life. I literally felt dormant DNA just pulsating in my blood. It would be like buried in, and then it would just start rising up as you hear those uh, staccato, the trumpets just going, oh, my God. It It was unbelievable. So that night I went to bed, and the one thing, one of the things at that time that had resonated with me was when Rocky tells Adrian uh, he knows he can't beat Creed. He knows no matter how hard he trains, no matter how much he runs up those steps and drinks raw eggs, there's no way he's going to beat Apollo Creed. But if he could be standing at the end of the day, if he could last 15 rounds and not get knocked out, he will have considered that a victory because no one had done that with Apollo Creed yet. The closest guy had gone 12 rounds. So when he's telling Adrian look, I don't have to be the best in the world. I just have to be the best in my world. I said, aha, that is something special. And that was one of the first lessons that I took away from Rocky. Wow, that is such a powerful message. And I think it's one of the reasons that Rocky really resonates with so many people too. So, you know, you mentioned your dad and I really fell in love with your dad in this documentary. (laughs) I know. I mean, your your parents are both adorable, but your dad said so many things that I just really loved. He, he said that, you know, it doesn't matter if you win or you lose, but if you walk away from this, you'll walk away from other things in your life. When, when he was talking about the the wrestling match. So to combat this, um, uh, bullies, one of the things I thought, okay, I want to, I want to be Rocky, but uh, how, do, how am I going to start that? So wrestling is kind of close to boxing. So there was this inner city, intramural city thing where you could sign up and all the schools would wrestle together. So I went through the wrestling practice. You do, I don't know, six, 10 weeks. And um, I was okay. 
But the problem with me is that I don't have a competitive nature about me. If you could throw a football farther than me, which, Gentry, I have no doubt you can, I would shake your hand and say congratulations. I have no need to be better than the next person throwing a football. So uh, I just need to throw it as far as I can. So keeping that in mind, um, my high school was about three or four blocks from my house growing up. So we all go down in the morning, and it's a, a round-robin tournament where you wrestle twice and you get eliminated. So – uh, I won my morning match, but the afternoon match uh, with a tougher opponent wasn't going to happen until the afternoon. So I had to stay in case the matches got mixed up or, or pushed forward. I had to be there to step on the mat so I didn't lose a forfeit. My dad and my brother were getting hungry, so they walked back home to have lunch. And I am someone who has tremendous insecurities. Um, I don't think I'm very good at anything I do my current job included. And so I'm always furiously worried about it and how to make it better. But back then as a kid, my insecurities overwhelmed me all the time. And um, I remember watching my father, and my brother walk out the gymnasium door and there were these, there were like 10 mats set up in the center of the gym and the bleachers were all pulled out and there were screaming parents and friends and neighbors. And it was so intense. It was the opposite of who I am. So as I, I look, watch my father leave, I'm looking at the clock and I'm thinking to myself, okay, if he walks home, he'll be home in about 10 minutes. And if I leave here in 15 minutes, I'll say it was a canceled. So that's what happened. I begin walking home. I come in the back door. And my father's like, Mikey, what's up? What are, what are you doing here? And I go, oh, dad, you know, the, the match got canceled. Uh, I, the guy forfeited, didn't show up. And it, that was the end. And I wasn't looking at him. I was looking down. And um, I always had eye contact with my dad. So he knew that's when I would be lying. So he goes, what, what really happened, Mikey? So my dad gets down on, literally on one knee and he lifts my chin up, just like you would see in a movie, it, it, just like that. And uh, I started crying because I was embarrassed that I quit. And my father said, I told him what happened. And he goes, Mikey, he goes, if you want to stay here, that's okay. I'm your father. I love you. It's, that's okay. But if you quit now, I promise you, you're going to look at the rearview mirror of your life in 20 years, then you're going to say you quit more things, and it starts now. Don't walk away from this. You can do this. It's not about winning. It's not about losing. You, just, you committed. You gave your word. This is what you must live up to because do you think you can try that? And um, yeah, so my father walked me and my brother back down and uh, my uh, match got called up in about 20 minutes after we got there and <laughs> I got the hell beat out of me. I lost it, but it didn't matter. It didn't matter because I stayed, I committed and I realized losing isn't half as bad as I thought it was. I mean, it's not fun, but you become more attuned to what you can do to be better. Because when you win, it's victory celebrations and lots of smiles and attaboys. But when you lose, you tend to look at what you did wrong. And you tend to gain more knowledge, which is why I'm a big believer losing. The more you lose in life, the better you are. You know, it keeps, if you're focused and if you channel that. And that's the little wrestling story. <laughs> that is so powerful, though. You could not have hit the nail on the head any more than that. That is so powerful about losing. I think that's such an important, um, it's a, such an important story and message for people to realize. And it really, I feel like it really gives us our power back because power yeah. is knowledge. And like you said, when you lose, if you can just learn something, yep. then it's like almost regain. It's like almost Take, taking back your power. <laughs> like, yeah, and yeah you're also, right. And it's also a part of life. I mean, if you don't learn about losing at an early age, I feel like you're really at a disadvantage. I feel like your dad was very insightful. And yeah. I think that, I don't know. I'm just, like I said, I just totally love your dad. He said, well, you know, <laughs> my dad always did my dad later, like when I was like 20, 21, you know, I don't know, we have fam big family dinner. And so we, uh, you know, that story would come back up or whatever. And he said at that moment, he was thinking he had hoped that everything I saw, how he and my mother 
built the life for my brother and I, how um, everything I saw and learned from them would come to a head in that moment when he was kneeling, telling me that, yeah, Mikey, you can stay here and quit. And I'm going to love you. It's not going to change anything, but you may not be able to live with yourself. He was hoping I was going to realize what my mom and dad did. They lost things through life, but they keep going on. They didn't have a choice because they had two kids they got to take care of. So they, you can't pack it in and, and, and cry the blues. You got a family and, and you got to persevere. So um, that was why that moment was so significant for me as a kid. And, and I've carried that with me my entire life um <laughs> they'd have to drag me out with Clydesdales before I would quit and so there you go that is so beautiful it really is it really is and and I have I do have to ask because I am a film major we were talking about film a little bit before we got started yeah. I love documentaries which is another reason I love the uh, pretender so much because it seemed to be so raw and real yeah. and I really love stories when they're told truthfully or at least they appear to be. So I want to kind of right. ask you a behind the scenes question. Do you feel like it was a fair representation of you in your life? It, it was a dead on perfect representation. Uh, Jim Toscano and Danny Janino, the, the director and his work partner, uh, Danny, Danny did the editing on the pretender. Um, I'm a natural performer, especially, you know, whenever there's a camera on, you tend to play up a little tiny bit. And the problem that Jim had, Jim knew when I was acting and not bad acting. I wasn't like, you know, Robert, Robert Wagner or like John Wayne sticking my jaw. Come on, fellas, let's go over that hill. It wasn't like that. But whenever I stepped out of being Mike, Whenever I added a little too much sly, because I tend to morph into the sly sometimes, and when that would happen, he was like, uh, okay, thanks, Mike, but you're doing the sly thing. Let's give me you. And, of course, my wife, Sue, she would uh, always acknowledge. She goes, listen, stop acting like sly. Just be you. And uh, so Jim was excellent at that. The thing he, the rule he had, he only wanted real moments because they filmed for five years. They followed me for five years on The Pretender. And um, through that five years, it was, there were real, real moments. And that's all he used. And, um, you know, my wife is a very hard woman to please if you are telling a story about us. So, you know, mm -hmm. she, uh, she gave it the thumbs up and she said that that's us. That what's in that movie, that's my dad, it's my mother, and, and so on. That's so cool. That's so cool. I love, I, I'm so glad that that was the, um, that was the response. <laughs> now, oh, yeah. now you are Italian. My partner's Italian. You said hi to him before we got started. So I understand yeah. big personalities and passion more than most people because I've lived with an Italian for almost <laughs> six years, but your oh. wife, yeah, but your wife, Sue, and your parents uh, mentioned what you were just talking about a second ago, which is that sometimes, you know, they weren't sure where Mike was ending and Rocky was beginning. Yeah. There a clear separation for you of the two, or do you think that channeling maybe his character for so long has kind of ended up in your DNA, if you will? Have you been secretly chatting with my wife? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think you get along. She seems really cool. <laughs> so my wife is someone who does not suffer my foolishness at all. So, you know, my wife, she's a very tall woman. She's five, nine and a half. So she's like in my face if I screw up or if I act too much of a, of a goof. And when it comes to Rocky, when it comes to Sylvester Stallone, see, you, you got to understand, Gentry, I have, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a very insecure person. Not that I demand things and I try to hide around it. I, I hide behind Rocky. So when I'm in any given situation um, where I feel, see, I don't think anybody's going to like Mike Kunda, okay? I feel I'm like uh, a, a third-rate conversationalist. So I tend to hide behind a Stallone-like effect. At the same time, I don't, I usually don't do it I usually know I'm doing it. I, it's a conscious choice I make to just pepper 
my voice, my mannerisms with a little bit of sly. I, I feel there's an expectation. When you tell people you're a Rocky impersonator and then they get my Kunda, they're like, well, geez, I don't know what's going on. Because people don't realize that, you know, I'm just doing a, a, a study of a character. I, I am my own person. I have my own thoughts. And um, so, that, for example, let's say we, we uh, go out to dinner with a, I don't know, uh, work friends or whatever, and, or new neighbors or something. They were at a cookout. I always think people look at me and they say, well, I think they're judging me. Like if you met a guy who was an Elvis impersonator, you and he wasn't an Elvis impersonator in the moment, and he was like Joe Smith, you would be looking at him and you'd say to yourself, I don't know, does he have the sideburns for Elvis? Does he have the, thank you very much. Like, what does, why is he an Elvis impersonator? And I think that's what people do to me. So my wife will elbow me. She goes, Mike, you're slipping into Rocky. I go, oh, like, I know it, but I think I have to because, and my wife just says, you're nuts, Mike. It has nothing to do with that. Just be yourself. And I guess that's the hardest thing I have a problem with is, is being myself sometimes. So that's why Jim made it so important that it was real. And that's why my wife said what she said in the documentary. And my parents worried too, because I would be talking, I mean, these are the people that, bore me and raised me without talking to them like I'm Stallone. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like, no, 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 it's funny. I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, a, a psychiatrist would have a field day with me. You know, I mean, the, the insecurities that are just beneath the surface, but I, because I have people that care and love me um, and have my best interests at heart, they help me work out my insecurities and they don't even know that they're helping me. Um, and so, uh, but again, my wife is, is pretty spectacular and she's the only one that can take verbal bricks and smash me upside the head to bring me back to coherency. Well, look, I want to address what you just said about your insecurities um, because you also said in the documentary that Rocky was the one thing that you do well. Okay. <laughs> but from an outside observer, I think that you're extremely resourceful. I mean, resourceful is like, in today's world, resourcefulness, and yeah. my opinion, is everything. Um, you also sew, which Alex sews, by the way, which is pretty cool because his mom, his grandmother was a seamstress, just a side note, and I know your dad oh, sewed yeah. also, but you also paint, and I mean, yeah. and I'm not just blowing smoke. I mean, you're really, really good. And in oh, the doc- thank you. I mean, you're welcome, but it's true. And in the documentary, you said when you actually said this, and I want to know, I want to just kind of just delve into this a little bit. You said, when I stopped trying to imitate Stallone's art, I just did what was inside of me. And about halfway through it, it became my feelings. Yeah. And so I found that very profound. I felt like that might've been an aha moment for you. I'm not sure if you were aware of that or not, but can you talk to us a little bit about that, that moment of, or that realization? You know, yeah, I wish, I wish it was an aha moment at the time, but as any of my grade school and high school teachers would tell you, I'm somewhat dull. So (laughs) it didn't really hit me until a few years after that moment, looking back at the painting one night, it was hanging on a wall and uh, Stallone, he does this um, uh, expressionist work where he uses a palette knife. He'll use a screwdriver. He'll use a light bulb to apply the paint on a canvas. And they're very profound, deep meanings for him, whether it's a personal or whether it's people he knows and he incorporates this. And so I was literally just starting on a corner one day. I just, he uses bold colors, just thick, bold, big strokes and, and colors. And I thought, okay, let me just have fun at this. And um, uh, just about halfway through, I started realizing you know, when, you, when you're in your early 20s, 22, 23, you know, you, you have a lot of angst. You know, you, you're trying to find out where you belong in the world. I was, I was, I had two or three jobs at the time. I was with Sue. We, we had been together ever since 1989. And so, you know, you're, 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 uh, you get into a fight with each other. You get into an a, a emotional disagreement or whatever. And uh, you're painting uh, your, your whatever demons do you think are demons. I, I don't drink. I have never done drugs. I mean, I don't really have demons per se but when you think you have demons in the moment 
And so you, I painted it out and I wrote a verse uh, from Springsteen's, uh, one of Springsteen's songs. Verse, I don't know if you could read it in the movie, but in, if you freeze the frame, it says, you shot through my anger and rage to show me my prison was just an open cage. There were no keys, no guards, just one frightened man and some old shadows for bars. So uh, basically, um, you know, as many guys have issues in relationships, um, I had been seriously burnt um, by uh, relationships in the past. And so whatever, I don't know, whatever my issues were, I realized, oh my God, no, this, this woman is sent here to make things better. And she did. And so that painting largely has a lot to do with my wife and, you know, I love her and a whole bunch of things going on. <laughs> mm, it's a way for, it was, it is a way for you to, it's a healthy way for you to express yourself so yeah that's nothing. a good point <laughs> yeah yeah that that really is have you ever heard like when uh, men and women go to the gym and, and i i even mentioned this myself when you go to the gym and you start throwing the weights around that's like a metal psychiatrist for some people mm-hmm. completely and, and paint, yeah yeah and painting can do this have the same effect for a lot of us and um, i don't paint quite as much anymore because you know with the exception of covid uh, my tours take up 14 hours a day of my time. I'm always, always working and I'm always trying to perfect it, make it better. And so um, I don't I don't have that desire to paint like I used to. But, um, you know, you never know. Maybe a painting is going to come out one of these days. Well, you're prioritizing right now. And I cannot wait to talk about your film tour in a little bit. But um, before we get to that, I want to talk about your transition, you know, from basically everything else that you've tried to do in the world and that just keeps on pushing you back to Rocky. <laughs> so you tried to do other things. You tried college, but I love it that your dad said that you just became a better Rocky. <laughs> that cracked me up. Uh, you, yeah. were a, you were a part-time police officer. You worked in corporate America. You had an optical career for 10 to 12 years, I believe. Can you tell yeah. us a, more about that time? Because I think a lot of people out there will be able to relate to that feeling of feeling stuck in a job that they're not passionate about and they're, they're unsure about how to make their dreams fit into everything. If that makes yeah. sense. Can, so can you just sure, take, it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it sure does. It makes a lot of sense. I guess it, it starts with your senior year in high school. Um, my grandfather, uh, when I was 13 years old, my grandfather, uh, I used to dress up, I used to wear a Superman costume underneath my school clothes when I was like in third, fourth grade and a schoolyard bully saw that the cape was bolted underneath my school clothes. He ripped the shirt and the cape unfolded in front of everyone. As Superman and the six million dollar man and evil Knievel were my first heroes. Uh, the Lone Rangers, Zorro, and so on. And um, so I was always dressing. My father would make me these costumes uh, because he was a tailor. He was a master. He retired a master tailor. And he would make me costumes from things that we had around the house. Well, anyways, when I was 13, I had been well into Rocky already. And my grandfather gave me his old black fedora and leather jacket, just like Rocky's, because he knew this would be my shield, my, my suit of armor. I could wear, and I, w I wore it every day to school. And, um, you know, you get into a few fights and you toughen up and so on. So by the time I'm a senior, and it's 1985, and I'm in uh, high school in, in West Scranton, Pennsylvania, and the high school guidance counselor calls us down. Now you have to understand, everybody my senior year, most kids knew where they were going, whether they were going to go to the service, they were going to go to college, family business, they were going to learn a trade. I wanted to be Rocky and I'm sitting in the guidance counselor's office wearing the hat and the coat, <coughs> excuse me. And, uh, I, I'm, he asks me, what do you want to do with yourself? I said, well, I want to be Rocky. And he looks at me and he goes, uh, you want to be a professional boxer? I said, no, no, I tried that. I don't like it. I, I went to a local gym, didn't work out. And, uh, I said, no, I want to be Rocky. And he goes, Oh, you want to be like Stallone. You want to be an actor. And I said, no, no, I want to wear the hat and the coat and I want to walk around Philly and I want to get paid for it. And he goes, this is the dumbest thing in the world. That's never going to happen. Get the hell out of my office. And I said, uh, yeah, okay. So he thought I was goofing on him. When I was a senior in 1985, I looked at everybody. They all moved with purpose. I had no purpose. I had nothing. 
So when I, I, I never went to college. When I got out of school, high school, I was far too, uh, too stupid to go to school. And I, we didn't have the money. And there would be no way. I knew I would flunk out. So it was job after job. You just named a whole bunch of them on top of 25 other jobs you didn't mention. And I, I got to a point where uh, I got involved with being a police officer. My mother came to me one day and she said, uh, you know, I think you'd be interested. There's an article in the paper. The police Academy's open. So I kind of laughed at her, but I said, okay, I'll try it. And I ended up doing quite well in the police Academy. I graduated like second and third of my class. And um, I became a cop for about four and a half years. I, I had done pretty well with it. And I was working full-time pumping gas and hanging drywall, you know, doing what I had to do. And then I got a, I got a job with corporate America, uh, the optical career. I was a general manager with LensCrafters for like 11 years. And then 2008 happens. And I'm fired. Middle management is the first to go. But I had been very successful at that point. So Rocky never left me. Yes, I had to stop dressing like him um, uh, on a daily basis because no one's going to take you seriously on a job interview or at a job. There are requirements. You do have to have some type of fitting in skills. And, and that's something that was very difficult for me because I was always square peg round hole. I never fit in and I never really had friends. Um, so my problem now becomes, what do I do? Uh, I want, I, Rocky never left my heart, but what am I going to do with it? I'm not quite sure. Well, that's when I kind of jumped ahead a little bit with 2008. But something happens to me in 2006 that changes my entire life. And that was when I won a national Rocky lookalike contest in Philadelphia. And that changed everything. So, well, congratulations on that. Because if you hadn't won that in 2006, I would be like, what's wrong with those people? Yeah, right. Um, I know. I, I know that that was a real defining moment in your life. But, you know, you're talking about, um, you know, how Rocky never left your heart. Um, you know, in talking about the struggle of like trying to fit in and never feeling like you did fit in, mm -hmm. would you, would you say that maybe, or would you, could you see it maybe in a different way? It's not that you never fit in per se, but it was just that you were trying to juggle the demands of life while pursuing your passion and maybe you just hadn't figured out how to fit in that passion yet like you you just hadn't figured out how to work in rocky you know because when you were a senior you were like i just want to be rocky but you didn't really know what that meant no one really knew what that meant you didn't even know what that meant you were just like right. i just want to be rocky and so right. I just can't help but feeling like maybe it wasn't that you weren't fitting in, but um, that you just hadn't figured out how to integrate that part, that passion into your life yet. Do you, have you ever maybe thought about it? Well, so yeah. And, and you know, you, here's, here's the problem. When, when I put Rocky, when I hung up the hat and the coat in the back of the closet, it stayed there for a while because I had a focus. I couldn't, I couldn't have Rocky running around my head and be an effective general manager. I, I, I had to be quote unquote more mature. Okay. And again, people who were close to me were encouraging me to stay with the corporate world because this was a bona fide paycheck. Mm -hmm. What do you mean you want to be a Rocky in person? This is the dumbest thing in the world. Okay. But, uh, there was no contest yet. Now, after the contest happens, I have to get a, a, an agent, which I got an agent, and I started doing these Rocky gigs. But the Rocky gigs, I would get hired by like um, uh, event groups in Philadelphia. And um, I had never done anything like this. There's, by the way, there's no rule book on how to be a Rocky impersonator. <laughs> so there, there isn't. So like when you tell people, again, Elvis impersonator, that's self-explanatory. You know exactly what that means. You're going to get the skinny Elvis. You're going to get the fat Elvis. You're going to get a jumpsuit and you're going to get hunk of hunk of burning love. Okay. So <laughs> we understand that. But what does a Rocky impersonator do? Right. Do you run up steps? Do you punch people? I mean, what do you do? 
Um, so I, I, uh, I kind of worked all that out and I would be, uh, hired to show up for an hour at the convention center in Philadelphia. They open up the doors. I'd walk through and there'd be like maybe 7,000 pipe fitters. The pipe fitters union of America would be in Philadelphia. And I would run through the floor with the hat and the coat, go up on stage and I'd have to welcome them to Philadelphia. Then I would walk the room and as Rocky, forget about Mike Kunda. Nobody hired Mike Kunda. They hired Rocky Balboa, okay? So it would be me on one end working the room, and Ben Franklin would be on the other end of the room, okay? And then there would be a Betsy Ross, okay? And there would be somebody wearing a Liberty Bell costume. So here you have these icons of Philadelphia, and we would converge and just entertain people. But I was only getting a handful of those a year, and you can't live a life like that you got to have more work so so it's 2008 now and I'm, I'm looking for work and I realize nobody's hiring mm -hmm. but I'm I'm working on these new set of skills now what happened the hat and the coat come out of the back of the closet and everything that had been building for the last six seven years of putting Rocky back there Rocky comes it was like the Jonestown flood the dam bursts that's it there was no turning back and, uh, but now I had to channel it and I didn't know how to channel it anyways. Um, well, that's up to that point. So I don't, I don't want to jump too far. This story, if you have a certain way you want to go about it. No, no, it's just so fascinating. I just, I can't get enough of the story. I, I want to, this is a question I was going to ask earlier and, uh, and I didn't get around to it. So whenever you are getting ready to transition into the Rocky character and you're yeah. putting on your makeup, can you tell us just a little bit about what's going on inside of your mind? Like, is it a meditation process or is it, would you consider it method acting? Like how do you mentally even prepare for that? So because I've been doing it most of my whole life, it's a subtle segue. It's usually from the, it depends on like if I have a, a lot of the gigs are mostly late afternoon, early evening. So it really starts at the time I get up in the morning. There's just a, a hint. Instead of walking, getting out of bed and walking down the hall to make a coffee like I normally do, I would do it maybe as Rocky would do it. Now, what does that mean? Well, I walk like Rocky down the hallway. I don't walk like me. Um, I crack my neck a lot. I begin to throw imaginary punches and snort through my nose like Rocky does. Rocky's always thin. That original Rocky movie, he's always sniffling or snorting, and he's, his fists are all almost underneath his chin, and he's just throwing little uppercuts, and he just sways a little bit, and he's pretending to duck. I would do that every couple of minutes as I'm waiting for the coffee or waiting for the eggs to get done or whatever. And then I'd come in and my wife would get up and she'd sit with me and I would start to, instead of talking how I am now, I would use more street slang. Yo, use. Hey, what time is going to work today? And then I would subtly shift into, I'm like full-blown Rocky by the time I'm taking a shower at one o'clock and I got to be in Philly for four. So it's not so much meditation, but it's, it's slightly, me I guess it's a lot method acting, but it's also, I would catch myself in the mirror and I would feel incredibly self-conscious and stupid. And I'm the only one in the house and I'm applying this makeup. And when I would step back, I would say to myself, wait a minute, when you were 13 years old, you would kill to have this opportunity. You had no idea your life is going to come full circle embrace this. This is everything. If you don't believe you're a Rocky, those 7,000 pipefitter plumbers are never going to believe you think you're Rocky. You have got to eat, drink, and sleep it. You cannot have any other negative thought other than um, I'm Rocky. And uh, But at the same time, you're completely aware, like if I got pulled over for speeding on the way down, I'm not going to act like Rocky to the officer unless he's a Rocky fan and uh, it's going to help me get out of a ticket, which actually happened. <laughs> but, oh so my that's, gosh. That's, the, that's what the process kind of is for me. It really does sound like you are a very, very professional artist. You are very into your craft and you understand the type of mindset that it takes for you to pull it off, which is very, very important. I feel like mindset literally is everything. And on that note uh, about mindset, has there ever been a time when you wanted to give up on the entire dream or you thought, you know what, 
I can't do this anymore. No, never. Never. Never ever wanted, no, never wanted to give up. Doubts that it was going to happen, you know, when, when you're first starting. So I win the contest and I, I begin a slow burn relationship with Stallone. We, we have this slow uh, building over 13, 14 years of this uh, friendship. Uh, it starts off very, very low in, to where it is now. I could never have imagined in 100 years I would be able to honestly say Sylvester Stallone is my friend. Um, you know, there was a point where I would get maybe five gigs a year when I first started. They would be spread out throughout the year. I'd go three, four, five months with no gigs, nothing. And I'm thinking, oh, man, I am never going to get another gig, nothing at all. And then you get one. And I would live off the high from that gig for a month. I would say to myself, can you believe, Kunda, how lucky you are? My God, you get to perform. You get to interpret Rocky to thousands of people in one hour. You are Rocky or your best version of Rocky. And you're getting paid for it. How can we do more? <laughs> you know, and all it was, it was a simple process of getting your name out there. You should, like you said, it's a mindset and it's also, you, you gotta have a good work ethic. Uh, that's something I think is a little in, in demand right now. I don't know that so many people have, have the best work ethic. I, I think we could improve that a little bit. And um, I just think it's, you have to have patience, you know, you, you have to have patience. And my, it was just word of mouth. One event group said to another, hey, we're looking for a good Rocky guy. We just used this guy two months ago. It's crazy. This guy steps off the screen. It's 1976. He's street Rocky. I mean, you got to – and then they would give them my uh, agent's name and – Bingo, bango, that's it. I got another gig. Next thing you know, I have about 400 gigs underneath my belt, and I'm being hired on a regular basis. And it's just sticking to it. Yeah, I had to work two, three other jobs. But if you love something so deeply, if you have such a passion for it, Gentry, you've heard this. How many times have you heard this? Find a job that you love to do. It's like you're not getting paid to do it. It's, it's, it's not like a job. It's, um, it's cheesy and corny. But if you can apply your passion at, to a career, my God, that's it. That's, that's, that's the sweet spot. Mike, you're giving our listeners so many golden nuggets here. I cannot even stand it. You guys, thoughts lead to feelings, feelings lead to actions, and Mike is living proof, okay? I hope they heard everything you said. If they didn't, you need to rewind it and listen to it again. <laughs> you have to have patience. Word of mouth. You are speaking my language, my friend. That's Working That's two, three jobs. It is the absolute truth. You don't make up excuses. And I think you're totally right about today's world and not having enough patience and their worth work ethics, but I feel like that's an entirely different podcast that we could we could have for probably many You're right. hours, right? You're right. You're um, right. You're right. So I so whenever you finally got to meet Stallone, aka Rocky, can you take us back to that moment? Did it and tell us, did it meet your expectations? Was it everything that you had hoped for? Uh no, it was far more. Um so, you know, there's that old saying, uh, never meet your heroes because they'll only let you down. Mm -hmm. Not in this case. Not in this case. I can only speak from my point of view. Maybe somebody met Stallone and it wasn't a great meeting. I don't know. I met him over 20 different times. Um, and I can tell you each and every time it was so unique. He was incredibly kind, generous, and gracious. And he didn't owe me any of that. But the other thing was I didn't act like an idiot. You cannot go to a man like Sylvester Stallone jumping up and down. Yo, Rambo, I saw you fall out that tree. Yo, man, you can't. <laughs> you have to be calm because here is a man who's been around 40 yeah. plus years. He's had every type of fan come up to him. He's just going to look at you and say, okay, he's going to be nice. Okay, yeah. thank you very much. And he's going to just move on. And the thing I, I found Less was more. And what happened to me was I ran into him by accident. It was almost Forrest Gump-like in nature. I would literally be walking down the street in New York City, 
turning the corner, there's Sly. Uh, I was at a Planet Hollywood on my birthday, there's Sly. Uh, I, you, a casino in Atlantic City, there's Sly and Arnold. So, you know, you, it was a series of connections like that. And then he came out with Sly Moves. This is when his career was kind of at a low point. And he didn't have any movies out. And it was just before he started Rocky Balboa. He came out with a book called Sly Moves, which was a small autobiography and a workout book. And uh, which is pretty good, by the way. If you can find it on Amazon, I would suggest people getting it. Um, anyways, uh, during the signing at uh, Radio City Music Hall at the Barnes & Noble there, I waited in the line for about six hours. I was with my wife and like a thousand other people. and when you get inside, you know, you can see him sitting there signing and they, there's like six big gorillas in suits around him, And, uh, his publicist is, they're, they're telling everyone, do not talk to Sylvester Stallone. Do not take a picture with Sylvester Stallone, hand him your book and he will sign it. And he's like five feet on the other side of this lady barking these orders. And, uh, I'm like, okay, I understand. There's gotta be some rules here because if not, you can't stop and talk with everybody. So, the first time that it really led to anything of any majority, um, we, Sly and I have a, a, a mutual person that we both know. And this person told me a story that was rather unique. And I had maybe nine or 10 seconds to say something before I was pushed out of the way. And I had a problem with my volume control because I was clammy and nervous. And my wife tells me she thought I was going to pass out. And, um, but I was calm and I said, uh, hey, Sly, you and I have a mutual acquaintance. And it was a bit robotic because I was trying to modulate. And I could I watched him jump back because I startled him with my voice. And I could see <laughs> the gorillas starting to walk towards me. you know. And uh, so I quickly told him who the person was that that I knew. And he puts his hand up like a slight little pause to the guys to wait. And he goes well, you know so-and-so? And I go, yeah. And he goes, man, how's he doing? I haven't talked to him in years. Oh, and, that is uh, so awesome. Yeah, yeah. And so we talked a little bit more, and then we looked at each other, shook hands, and uh, he goes, thanks, man. Thank you for coming out. I really appreciate you coming out and getting my book. And mm -hmm. I said, no, thank you, Sly. And, and that was it. Now, we go outside. I, my knees were so weak, I began to cry. But it was a manly cry. It was very, I was very manly. My chin was up, my shoulders were back, and my, my wife tends to tease me and say, you know, I was like a, a little kid. But um, So that was the first major meeting. And then it progressed um, about a year later to Rocky Balboa. And I was on the freezing streets of Northeast Philadelphia where they were filming the scene where uh, Rocky gives little Maria a ride home, and he puts the light bulb in, and it's very bright. Yo, Marie, let there be light, you know. And so mm -hmm. they do this whole scene. Anyways, right before that, one of the paintings I had done is a black and white painting of Rocky and Apollo from the 14th round. Uh, I brought this painting with me on my wife's suggestion uh, because I did not think the painting was good enough, uh, which was right for me because I don't think I do anything well. And so she goes, no, no, Mike. She goes, Sly is going to see this painting and he's going to see your passion for the character, the way you painted it. And so, uh, so I took it and sure enough, she was right. He saw the painting. He comes right over. He goes, Oh my God, did you do this? So he takes it out of my hands and he begins, this was very interesting. He begins to take his fingertips and he begins to literally stroke the painting, the raised edges of the paint, uh, uh brush strokes. And he did this because he's a painter. He feels that connection with the paint. He's a very visceral guy, okay? And um, he began to tell me a, a particular story at this point, and I'm just, like, blown away. And uh, I, on the chance my wife was right, uh, I took a silver Sharpie, and I said, Sly, would you mind signing this? And he said, yeah, he signs it in the right-hand corner, Sly Stallone, clearly legible, which is something he doesn't always do. Usually, it's, it's two squiggly S's with a line through them. That's usually how he signs in a hurry. And um, he gives me the painting, and then he pulls it back away from me very quickly. And he puts on he was like Grandpa Sly at this point. He was very jovial, very happy, lighthearted. And then he put the only way I could describe it, like a Rambo face. And that classic 
crooked mouth opened up like Rambo's. And he goes, he goes, uh, I have one request. I don't ever want to see this on eBay because he signed it. Right. And then he goes back to being happy again and he hands it to me and he goes, it's better than that. Don't sell this because I signed it. This painting means something. And I'm staring at it right now. I can almost feel the emotion coming up on how special he thought it was. And then a few years later, I did a gig at, are you familiar with those Comic-Cons? Yes, yes. Okay, so I got hired as a door greeter at one of them, and Carl Weathers was there signing. Long story short, I bought the painting. I brought the painting with me, and he signed it for me uh, as I was dressed as Rocky. There's actually video of it out there on YouTube where um, we just got done sparring in front of 500 Rocky fans in this room. He turned into Apollo Creed because I was teasing him. Now, nobody knew. I wasn't supposed to be there. I didn't get paid to do any of this. I sneak into this room. We had to pay 100 bucks to get in the room, which I didn't pay, and I just yell. Yo, Paul, I thought you said there weren't going to be no rematch. And he looks around. He's got a line of people that he's signing autographs for. And he goes, Stallion, you got a dull skull, Stallion. Get up here, chump. Let's finish this fight right here, right now. So I'm like, oh, my God. So I take my walkie, my Rocky walk down the, the aisle. And I got the leather coat, the bruised eye, the hat, the cutoff gloves. And we start circling each other like boxers. And we're putting our dukes up, you know. And he starts banging out these jabs. And they're whiffing the brim of my hat. And I remember telling myself, Mike, whatever you do, do not lean forward or Carl Weathers will break your face. So we <laughs> dance for another like 40 seconds. And he sees that I'm stepping out of character because, uh, oh, by the way, I'm shadow boxing with Apollo Creed. And he just, <laughs> he, he, he raises my hand in victory and he does a little Apollo Creed thing. And then we go off to the side and we talk a little bit. And the very first thing out of his mouth that he says to me, he said, does Sly know about you? And I go, <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> it's like, Jesus, this is Apollo Creed. We're the 11-year-old in me that would never believe that, you know, I couldn't get a date in high school. I didn't have any friends. No girl wanted to know me. I was an odd youth dressing as Rocky, Superboy, whatever. Nobody wants that on their dating resume. You know what I mean? And so, you know, all these little wins added up and they helped my insecurities. So I didn't mean to monopolize that, that conversation. Sorry. No, Mike, are you kidding me? I love your stories. That's why I wanted to have you on today. You need to write your own book. I'm just going to throw that out there. I'm sure. You, I hope you've thought about it before, yeah, but if you haven't. No, I do. Actually, I do. I wrote a yeah. book. It's called Cue the Rocky Music. Yes. Okay. Well, you just, you have so many stories inside of you. What, I mean, it's just, and you're a great storyteller, by the way. I mean. Oh, thanks, Chantry. Yeah. So I could, I could listen to your stories all day long. <laughs> um, so let's talk, since we're talking about uh, sure. Rocky, let's talk about the climax of the movie for a second because before Roxy Rocky exhales, uh, as you mentioned, yeah. you said it wasn't about winning or losing in that moment. What was it about for you? For when Rocky, when Rocky does, when, when right before Rocky exhales, yes, he gets the girl. That's, I mean, isn't that what we all want? We all want to be valued. We all want to find that person that gets us. We all want to find that person. Like uh, Tom Cruise says in Jerry Maguire, you complete me. We all want that. We, we, we are so uh, driven by our emotions and uh, by, by love. When you have that, you, you, you think you're invincible. You think you can do anything. Maybe it's false. Maybe you can't do anything. But when you have love in, you, in your life, that's it. You think you can do it. And that's, that's why Rocky is a love story. Rocky's not a boxing movie. Boxing is about nine minutes of the movie. I mean, it, this, it, the guy just happens to be a boxer. He is uh, somewhat insecure, and he, he finds uh, love in this wallflower librarian of a woman uh, who is, um, you know, keeping alive these pets in this uh, tough part of town. And in that moment, the closing moment, it isn't the fact that he went the distance. That was his personal victory. That was Rocky's victory to go the distance. But he's gone the distance in life because he's got Adrian. 
He's got love. He, it doesn't matter that he lives in that ugly apartment. It, that doesn't matter that it looks like a uh, living trash can inside there. It, he, he has Adrian. <laughs> And everything is beautiful when you're in love, right? So there you go. Mm, it really is. I think you and I are, can both attest to that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and I just want to say that I think Rocky has just given you the amount of confidence you need to really bring out your own creativity. And because you're talking a lot about insecurities um, that you have had and that you that you have, but I just really think that you're such a creative soul and you have so many gifts and there's just so many things that you, Mike, Kunda, separate yeah. from Rocky, are good at or great at. And I just yeah. think that he's just really given you, in my opinion, that confidence that you need to kind of come into your own. And to me, it's no different than, you know, someone saying, what would so-and-so do? What would Oprah do? Yeah. You know, what would whoever yeah. do to give them yeah, that Yeah, no, you're right. You know, to give them that confidence. I mean, I know I have to do that. If I have to do like a little TV spot or if I have to step into a moment that I'm nervous about, I know I have to like summon that type, that part of myself where I know I can have the confidence, but you know, on a day-to-day basis, I'm an introvert who doesn't like the spotlight yeah. and I have to prepare and practice just like you do uh, yeah. to do my job. So, um, yeah. So I just wanted to say that little side note because, thank uh, you. yeah, I just wanted to put that out there. And you then, may, you may be onto something. You may I be onto something. You something. Know. All right. You know, you might be. <laughs> <laughs> well, in an interview, um, because you talk, just talked about emotions in an interview, online, you mentioned that the Beverly Hills Film Festival was sort of more for the filmmakers, that you really didn't need that, that you needed your hometown of Scranton to cheer, like emotionally. Can you tell us why you felt that way? So I felt that I was never accepted by the people that knew me. And and again, you know, uh, people... It's weird because on one hand, I feel like I'm a jerk saying it because I've gotten a lot of um, awards. I've gotten a lot of interviews and I've got a lot of beautiful feedback for what I do. And I know now at 52 years old that I'm, I'm better than I've ever been at what I do for a living, but I continue to get better all the time. So what forms us when we're children, what, what the, the insecurities that we have in, as children, they're the same ones as, that, that carry us with us as, as adults. So having said that, I w- it was the one redemption I could say to myself, I could start to build, uh, on, to build up my insecurities on another level. Yeah, you're right. Rocky took me so far. But if I could get people who really... Um, said a lot of negative things about me back home. If I could get them to show up in, in this theater for this movie, maybe at first they'd show up to say, yeah, I knew Kundu was a loser. Yeah, I knew this guy. Look at him dressing like Rocky. This guy's an idiot. Well, that may be true, but you're still in the movie theater, okay? You paid your ticket to come see it. I got you to come <laughs> see me one way or the other. And um, so, we, you know, we all have these dreams. You're in a movie theater, and there's a story about your life, and you get a standing ovation uh, from your hometown. And, you know, your, your wife is there, your spouse, partner, whatever, and your, your parents, your family. Um, and uh, that's exactly what happened. Now, the thing that makes it all very interesting is the theater that they chose to see to show it in uh, back home. It's called the Ritz Theater on Wyoming Avenue in downtown Scranton. And that was the theater in 1982 when Rocky III came out. I saw Rocky III that summer like 60 times, and it was in that very theater. And here I see my wife and my parents sitting in the very row, in the very seat I sat in, watching Rocky III being blown away. And here up on the screen is a movie about me becoming Rocky in life in Philadelphia. It, and the whole theater stood up. It was sold out. It was a, a huge, huge win. And uh, it's the one time in my life I allowed myself to say, you know what, Kunda? You did okay. And um, I don't often say that, but I did that night. I think that you, yeah, you did more than okay. That is that is a really special sort of a, full circle moment, if you will. 
And uh, I think a lot of people are going to relate to that feeling that you felt when you were, um, when you were at that viewing uh, with those people that maybe you knew didn't believe in you before. And now they were, paying a ticket <laughs> to come yeah, you okay. were, yeah, yeah you're the star of the show so look who's talking now <laughs> well yeah that, that's you know that's the funny thing you know uh when i i wrote a book called cue the rocky music in uh, 2008 2009 i got it published in 10 and um so Scranton did, they were having a big book festival and they had notable authors from around the world come to this thing. And because I'm a local boy, they asked me to take part in it. And I did. And, and, and it was really interesting. And uh, standing in line were some of the girls and guys in school that I either didn't get along with or some of the girls that I wanted to go on dates with. They were like, you know, the, the top five girls you wanted to get a date with and none of them wanted. Well, could I just go on the record and say um, I avoided some serious bullets here? Okay. <laughs> because <laughs> life, life was not as, you know, kind to them as maybe they had hoped it would be. So I was like, uh-huh, okay. I had no idea you are you. You look incredibly different from how you looked in 1985. <laughs> so I was like, Phew. okay. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I love it. I love that. Um, so funny. But – it's just life is funny. Let's just put it that way. Life it can is be, funny. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. and I, I think that, you know, it's not that we should ever do anything that for anyone else, like that's not the way that we should move in life. Like we should always, you were talked about the why earlier in our conversation. I think that we always have to have that why to sustain us. But yeah. I also think that the naysayers can also give, a certain fuel to the, to our fire in a good way and a passionate way that can kind of, you know, when we hold on to stuff like that, I'm not saying to hold on to the negativity to the contrary. I'm saying to use, we can use that negativity uh, to push us to be better. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but that's what I get out of you. And I know that that I, I, I know that that resonates with me. Um, I so, said that a hundred times. I said I said that two hundred times. I absolutely believe you can, and and I'm a really, for the most part, well-adjusted guy. I'm pretty rational. Uh, I I get that from my mother. Um, She, my mom is quiet. She doesn't say a lot. She's very observant. She takes it all in, and usually at some point I ask her her thoughts or advice or whatever. And you know, my mother. I'm half Polish and I'm half Italian. And my mother, she's the Polish side of the family. She's very emotionally durable. She has shoulder, emotional shoulders like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay. She, mm-hmm. that, this is, this is where I get that strength from. Um, and you know, I, I learned that you, you do have to let go of that pain that you felt when people put you down or made fun of you or whatever, whatever it was that you're carrying around. So now, it, but you still carry it, but it's not debilitating. You found a way to live with it. Now, not everyone is going to take their sorrows from childhood and teenagers and, and use it as fuel because I don't think that it works that way for people. But I think when you have, or maybe it does, I don't know, but I don't have any friends, so I don't have nobody to ask. <laughs> so, but, but for me, I think when you, when you have a, what I do for, for a living is unique and, and, and rare. You're not going to find a lot of Rocky impersonators that are backed by, you know, endorsed by Sylvester Stallone that have a movie about their life that, that do this for a living. So I find my insecurities creep up on me as successful as I've been. I still have to go to the well of emotional distress to say, yeah, remember when so-and-so on, you know, January 18th in 1984 said you sucked at a Rocky impersonator. Well, you know, Show that person, and that person, like, they're never going to see it, right? They're never going to know. But in my mind, when I'm performing, whether it's on stage, you're in a crowd, or whatever it is, I'm performing to that one person that said I sucked. And, you know, I don't always do that, but who knows why we go where we go in our heads. So I think you're 100% right. 
It's so inspiring. I'm, yeah. That's such an inspiring way to look at it. And I love your mom too. She sounds like awesome. a, a really awesome person. Um, oh, yeah. Now you said in the documentary that you had zero interest in anything else besides being <laughs> Rocky, Rocky. So I just want to ask at the end of our conversation today, do you still feel that way? Still feel that way. I, it, I, I, I what else is there? I mean, I'm sitting <laughs> right now. I'm sitting in a room that is 15 by 30 and Every ounce of my wall is pictures of either something to do with Rocky or something of that I've, I've accomplished in my life or something with Philadelphia or Scranton. That's it. That's, that's my life. Um, I pay attention to the news. I try to follow politics. I try to follow <clears throat> what's going on in pop culture. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm okay with that stuff, but it, I, I have no passion. Like, I'll forget 10 minutes about it. 10 minutes after I hear about it, I forget about it. Well, <laughs> But with Rocky, all that stays. And that drives my wife nuts um, because, you know, imagine what she has to endure. So she has a husband that resembles Rocky on some strange level. I'm always dressing like Rocky to some degree. My mannerisms go in and out of focus with Rocky. Uh, I'm always got, I've always got some type of Stallone Rocky movie on television. When she comes home from work, and, I, you know, if I have the day off or I'm home first or whatever, she, Rocky's blaring. And she'll go take a shower, get changed, we'll have dinner, and she goes, can we watch, like, a Julia Roberts movie? Can we watch, like, The Sopranos? Can we watch something else other than Rocky? Because she has given me such freedom, such latitude to do what I do, to immerse myself in this Rocky culture um, that, you know, uh, at some point you got to shut it off and I do shut it off. And I have my own thoughts that aren't necessarily in line with Sylvester Stallone's or, or Rocky's thoughts. You know, I am my own person. Um, I, I t if anything, the biggest difference, I think I tend to be a little bit more blue, blue collar, like blue humor, like more like Andrew Dice Clay, a little more, <laughs> a little more foul mouth that like, that's me when I'm around my brother-in-laws and family and stuff, you know, we're, because that's kind of how we were all raised and just kind of be a little, a little more relaxed in that aspect. But you know, Rocky's it for me. Well, let's talk about, you said what you do. So let's talk about what you do for just a second, because you have your Yo Philly Rocky film tour, which me and Alex cannot wait to go. We can't wait until all of the social distancing is over and it's yes. not a thing because that's going to be on our bucket list. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So um, what we do we pick people up at their hotels uh, within the city limits in Philadelphia, and we drive around for about three and a half hours <clears throat> to all the Rocky uh, filming locations, of which there's anywhere uh, between 60 and 75 uh, locations, depending, like, if you're not a fan of a particular, like, say, Rocky Five or, say, Creed or whatever. You know, sometimes people don't necessarily want to see those, but we hit a lot of locations. And the wonderful thing about my tour, what's really different about what I do, is I've had the, the pleasure of sitting with Stallone on numerous occasions and asking him a lot of questions about the original Rocky and the Rocky series. And he shared many stories that are not out there. They're not online. They're not in books. And he hasn't spoken about them in interviews. These are only questions you could get if you've asked him yourself. So I incorporate my vast knowledge my uh, time with Stallone, uh, along with uh, Burt Young, who played Paulie in the Rocky movies. He invited me a few years ago out to his house on Long Island, and he told me for five hours all of his Rocky stories. On top of all of that, I've gotten to know a lot of the people in Philadelphia that were part of the Rocky movies, whether it was the restaurant owner from a, uh, the Victor Cafe, where they played Adrian's, or the gym from Creed, the Front Street gym where Rocky trains Adonis, uh, or people who had one or two lines in the movies. And they tell me what it was like, their stories. So I write it all down, and I have it on file, and obviously it's ingrained, it's tattooed on my brain. And I begin this story of why Sylvester Stallone chose Philadelphia. I tell them why he chose to wear the fedora that he did the gray, ugly sweats, why they are short on him, why they are so beat up, why this location, why not another location? So, and then I weave my own story of failure after failure in my one win, uh, this Rocky tour. And we culminate at the steps, running up the steps, 
punching our fist in the air. And um, it's a real beautiful connective moment. And the thing I got to tell you, Gentry, I love about this is that there aren't many jobs in this world where you get to be, you start off as strangers. But imagine clasping your fingers together and you're like one giant interwoven fist. And that's what it's like by the end of the tour. These people allow me a window into their lives of divorce, marriage, cancer. They lost a child. They just had a child. They got a job. They got fired. They, they are so open and they tear up at so many of these rocky sites. I tell this story. I just told it the other day. I had these um, loggers from British Columbia. Now, these guys are about six foot four each and about 270 pounds. This is like, you know, it's like Andre the Giant. Okay. They're just massive men. And uh, they got to the steps and the one guy starts crying. Like, you know, not like, like ridiculous crying, but he got very choked up, very emotional. And I, I said, hey, man, talk to me. You know, what are you feeling right now? And he had just lost his wife. And uh, the Rocky Steps, that was their favorite part of the movie, of course. And, you know, so it was, he's here now. And it was a way for him to feel that connection with his wife. So <clears throat> that's what we do. And um, it's, uh, it's fun. We usually do two tours a day. Um, I'll usually do 14, 15 days straight. Take a day off, two days off. and But, of course, now social distancing. I can't do anything. Philly's closed to non-essential. But let's hope that changes soon. And it definitely will. It will. And yeah. we'll get back to this really unique, personal, fun experience that you've created. Mike, I am so excited to do it myself. I cannot tell you. Um, so I know that you have a YouTube channel also. And then you have your Yo! Philly Rocky Film Tour also. Yeah. Can you tell people where they can find you online and stay connected or the best places? Yes, yes. There's one place that I'm really, really super active on. And that is my Instagram account. Um, it's ju- it's simply the Yo Philly Rocky Film Tour. Uh, I'm on there. Uh, please follow me. I think it's the best. You know, the thing I like about Instagram, Instagram, I don't allow any political discussions, nothing like that. That doesn't get in the way. I love Instagram because you see funny, happy pictures of people with their kids, their cats, their passions, their hobbies. I love that. Okay. And so that's, that's uh, to me, Instagram is the best of, of social media right now. I am on, on uh, Facebook, but I, I just think Facebook lends itself to be a little too confrontational, as does Twitter. I'm on there too, but you know what? Follow me on Instagram. IG is your jam. We gotcha. And we're going to link to that in the bottom of our show notes, as well as link to <laughs> Q, the Rocky music book. We're going to link to the Yo! Rocky Film Tour. Uh, and also the Pretender documentary, you know, Ah, Mike, yes, yes, we're going to link to all of that. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on my show so badly is because you're someone who, despite adversities, has never given up on your dream or believing in yourself. And I so can appreciate and relate to that. Um, Thank you so much for joining me here today, Mike. I know our listeners are going to be inspired so much just from hearing your stories, just as I am. I look forward to hopefully talking with you again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. And for our listeners, make sure to sign up for our newsletter if you haven't already for weekly skincare tips and our Beauty Brand Bootcamp course updates at gentryquinn.com.